Hi everyone, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. And today we have a very special guest who's actually been on a podcast before. Uh, it's uh, Jeff DeGraff, who's a Chairman, CEO of Renmac. Jeff, welcome. Thank you, Mo, it's good to see you. It's great to see you. So just a quick reminder who Jeff is. Uh, is long-time friend, I think I've known Jeff for, gosh, I'm thinking 20-odd years, Um but uh, you know, more importantly, he's uh, consistently been top number one technical analyst. H- how many years in a row, uh, or how many how many years, Jeff, um, have you been? I, I was ten, or I'm sorry, I was twelve or thirteen, and then I seeded that when uh, we started Renmac. Just right, the mark, okay. you know, the marketing uh, yeah, arm yeah. isn't quite as big, but yeah, uh, yeah. yeah for a long time, long yeah. time. Absolutely, and um, and on the Hall of Fame. Uh, do you get a special plaque for being on the Hall of Fame? <laughs> I do. I actually did, you know, a little, little, uh, I don't even know where it is, but there's a little <laughs> something somewhere with uh, with my name on it. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> right next to my Little League trophies. I was I was absolutely wondering that. But uh, obviously, um, you know, Jeff, uh, is a, we, we followed uh, at EFG, certainly I have followed and the rest of the team have followed Jeff's work for a long time. And uh, Jeff, I think one of the things that certainly uh, has impressed us over the years is how you've been able to kind of graduate your 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 art um, of technical analysis over the years. So when we first met, um, it was linking credit to, to, to the charts. And I think that was very unique at the time. Obviously, global financial crisis came along and then uh, everyone else kind of caught up and started doing the same thing. Uh, and uh, obviously now you've further evolved your uh, your art through uh, market maps and would we'll go into details a little bit more uh, about how you construct those and, and how you think about and bringing quantum mental into your into your analysis how do you keep it going and keep on keep on staying on top for such a long time well it's probably just my restless nature and you know getting bored with certain things <laughs> like okay that's you know let's let's move on um obviously you know certain things persist and work um momentum is one that you know more times than not works it doesn't work uh all the time it's not infallible nothing's infallible but um you know i would put momentum up there with value and i put that up there with credit those are three sort of pillars that do have an impact on on equity returns or asset returns generally, right? So all those things are a little bit of the holy trinity in terms of how we, you know, think about the world. But, you know, that gets back to one of the reasons why I started Renmac, um, which is I really, I'm a data junkie. I, I like data. I like sifting through it. There's a lot of noise. And to be honest with you, Moses, I'm just amazed still to this day how much um, intuition or hunches or guesses or narratives or theories or whatever that don't bear any relationship to the past or have any statistical meaning uh, are taken as gospel in this business. And that was really one of the things that got me excited about Renmac um, was building my own database and building our own charts and writing our own code so that we could really sift through things and, and have a better understanding. And you know, it, it takes you back to a lot of those um, those Greek philosophers who talk about the minute you start to know something, you realize you don't know anything. And and a lot of it is that, right? Where you sit there and say, okay, well, you know, if you look at a PE, you need a PE of 10 in the market, um, you know, before that's a value. Well, you know, you start looking into that and you say, well, that's great, except the capital structure has changed because tech has a much different structure 
than say energy did or industrials did back in the 70s and those weights are different and so really if you start comparing say PEs in 1974 to today, you, you can't do it in good faith because so many things underneath the surface have changed. And yet that's one of those indications that people take as gospel, right? So, you know, we're, we're very interested in trying to get to the truth and trying to get to the heart of it. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes when you do that and, and you put your best foot forward, it still doesn't reveal anything. Um, and, and, and that's almost the, the irony is the things that, that really don't hold a lot of, of weight or shouldn't hold a lot of weight from a, um, from a logical or an intellectual honesty standpoint, uh, still take a lot of, uh, a lot, a lot of the, the narrative and a lot of the airtime because, you know, people sort of relate to it better. And it is just, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful business, but there are certainly some parts of it that just make me scratch my head and say, what in the heck is going on here? Mm-hmm. Trillions of dollars are being managed on, you know, what essentially is smoke and mirrors. Yeah. Well, I think that's, you know, that's one of the big challenges, um, that we kind of face in our industry, you know, everyone can very easily be an armchair investor these days, right? And then yeah. they'll see whatever is on Twitter or, you know, YouTube channels and so on and so forth and just assume that's correct. And, and, and I think, you know, one of the things that certainly at EFG we've really pride ourselves on is actually always go to the source data um, because you just can't, and, and be it a speech that comes along, you know, often... You, people lazy they don't necessarily read the speech or listen to speech uh on its on its own but leave some read someone's interpretation of it right and that then becomes gospel and it's not it's just someone's opinion and i think you know we you know that is the real danger that we face with information overload is that we become lazy (laughs) um and 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 just you know just say oh that must be right well actually it's not (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. That's, yeah. I think that's part of the problem that we see with the media today. And that's part of the problem that we see in, you know, in our business and other businesses as well. It's just uh, almost too much. And people want to default to something that's easy. And um, you have to be very careful of your source if you're going to do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So let's let's talk about the markets uh, today. So um, uh, sort of kind of briefly introduced um you obviously have the technical uh, analysis piece, and again, we'll go into that in a second. But where you evolved your work is much more, I call, I call it quantum mental, because you're just taking lots of data, observations, and you build this kind of market map. What is the positioning of the market map today? Well, let, let's back up if I could a little bit. I mean, I think you, you want to think about the world. Um, you know, you, you and I know the world as people talk about it, which is, well, there's, you know, there's technical and then there's fundamental, and this new discipline of, of quantitative has come in, and um, and so as, as you say, it, it, it becomes a little bit of, of quantum mental here. Um, we actually think about it maybe um, even differently than that. Um, you know, and, and recently I wrote a um, a research report on uh, linking market research to the uh, the physics of energy, right? Where energy is is either potential energy or energy is kinetic energy. And I, I think the, the simplest way to think about uh, potential energy is energy that's stored. It's not in, it's not in action, it's not being you know, burned or used, but it's, it's there, it, it has potential. And you know, one of the ways to think about that is say a, a building um, that is being demolished, right? All the energy it took to build that building, let's say it's 10 stories, um, 
once it comes down, whether that's through, you know, a uh, demolition or a wrecking ball, whatever the case is, it releases that potential energy and all that energy is equal. And we think about a lot of the, the market that way. We think about valuation that way. We think about credit that way. These are things that, that have the potential to be very, very powerful, but on their own, they can't do it. They need some push. They need some catalyst. And that's where you get into the kinetic energy. Kinetic energy is the energy in motion, energy that's actually, you know, translating. And that can come from gravity. It can come from a chemical reaction, et cetera. So um, we think about the market. Kinetic energy is momentum. Kinetic energy is trend. Kinetic energy is what you would, you know, most likely call technical analysis, right? It's, it is the, um, the observation of bodies in motion or stocks in motion. And then we add to that, how tall is this building? How much potential energy is there? And where we, you know, what that allows us to do by thinking that way, it allows us to bring in fundamental or quantitative disciplines because we can say, look, you know, if we've got a strong trend in place and we've got good valuations, well, there's a lot more potential energy to be matched with that kinetic energy than there is if we've got a one-story building, right? And so as we think about the world, a lot of the things that, that we'll discuss today will be in this potential energy camp. And in fact, I would say there are a lot of things in this market that have good potential energy. Um, what we're really missing is that kinetic energy piece. And, um, and, and that's what's become more difficult. Sort of, you know, think about it like the first swing of a wrecking ball. It hardly ever takes down the building, right? I mean, we, we get these days or these weeks that look pretty good, but you need a couple more passes of that wrecking ball before you can really unlock the, that potential energy that's, that's embedded in that building. And so as, as we look at the world, there's one thing that, um, you know, that helps us to frame the current environment. We call it our market cycle clock. And it's nothing more than really just juxtapositioning um, the historical data. And we've got about 70 years of this, the historical data between uh, the relationship, because there is one between these, growth and inflation. You know, think about it, it just like the Phillips curve, almost just from an economics perspective, um, where they're looking at inflation and unemployment or inflation and employment. We look at growth of which, you know, employment's part of that, but also inventories and other things that go along with that. And then we juxtapose that versus inflation. And <clears throat> what you find, and in fact, 2021, we were in this zone the entire time of 2021, which is when inflation and growth is running hot, that gives policymakers uh, a lot of flexibility to become more stringent in their policies and to, to basically take away that punch bowl. And we thought it was early in early 2021, um, you know, in terms of the economic data, but certainly it was suggesting that this is not a great environment uh, for equities historically. And now that everybody's talking about inflation, and clearly the data is there that the inflation looks bad, there are certain inflation indications, particularly those linked to commodities, that say, you know what, as we start to go through this process, um, we're already seeing peak inflation uh, numbers in some of these instances, and, and PPI is a good example of that. And again, that's that's more commodity heavy, but those are input prices that go into the things we use in our daily lives. And so, if you know those start to soften a bit, then uh, wages soften a bit, demand will improve. Uh, you know, those things sort of work hand in hand. It takes it takes a while to get that pig through the python, if you will, but um, you know that's where where we are. So actually, we see this this contraction in growth. Um, lined up more bullishly from a conditional standpoint from that potential energy. And we see some early signs of that inflation cooling. Um, so that's one part of it. The data 
starting to fall more in line with what we would expect to see uh, in terms of the beginning phases of a, of a bull market. Uh, again, it's a three-story building. We, you know, we, don't, we haven't unlocked that, uh, that kinetic energy that's all potential energy. The other part of it is, is sentiment. And sentiment is right now, depending on how you measure it, there's really three or four things that we look at that, that, are the, that constitute the majority of, of uh, the sentiment data, uh, investors' intelligence polls, the commitment of traders' data, put call ratios, and the like. Um, those are, those are, are historically pretty consistent indications, not only of what people are saying, but what people are doing. You, you want to understand both of those. And there's plenty of evidence that shows that people are offsides, right? That there's just way too much bearishness out there that whatever the bad news is, um, you know, within uh, call it one standard deviation of, of either side uh, is probably well discounted. And, and I think you probably see the same thing when you have conversations with people either in or, or outside of the business, which the, people's concerns seem to be, um, you know, one of two or three things. It's, it's the Fed or the BOE. It is uh, currency volatilities and or it's the likelihood of recession slash inflation. So, you know, one of the things that we do is when we look at sentiment is we try to identify, okay, well, what, what's sentiment reflecting, right? What, let's, let's, let's not just use the data and say, you know, there, there are only 25% bulls, but let's ask ourselves, what are, they, what are they bearish about or what, you know, what is keeping people from being bullish? Because I think when you identify that, and that, that's certainly more of an art than a science. I mean, we can look at Google Trends, we can do some other things to, to help with that. But once you start identifying that, then you know where the weak points are. And I think CPI, the recent CPI data, um, was a pretty good example of that. It was a bad number, there's no doubt about it. But we also, at the same time, had uh, a lot of confidence that that number was probably priced into the market in some way, shape, or form. And, and clearly, the market was down in the beginning of the day and then closed up very, very strong. In fact, it was one of the strongest reversals that we've seen in the last uh, 15 or 20 years, actually. So, um, you know, it's just a reflection that when everybody's thinking the same way and you get news that is supporting that, what you know? Who else is left to 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 act on that? So market cycle clock, the sentiment is good. Seasonality, which is you know, it feels like sort of a silly, soft uh, you know analysis point. But doggone it, if it doesn't work, you know, more times than not, and we know the fourth quarter tends to be a relatively firm point. Uh, for equity markets. And that's even true if you've got a Fed that's raising rates. So, you know, one of the things that we're finding ourselves doing just to head off the questions, and and they're all good questions, uh, but just to get ahead of it is, well, okay, I see what you're saying, but what happens when the Fed's raising rates? Does that still hold, right? So uh, it does still hold, actually, when the Fed's raising rates, that seasonality works in the fourth quarter. It doesn't work as well, but it still has um, at least market returns to it. So those three things are, are, you know, what what we're looking at right now that, again, represent that potential energy. And we're just waiting for more kinetic energy. There's a, you know, there's a few little spots here and there, again, sort of passes of the wrecking ball, if you will. Um, but they, you know, they haven't been as, uh, as table pounding and, and as forceful uh, to suggest that they're self-sustaining as, as we'd like to see. So I think th- th- those are, are, you know, sort of the combination of how we think about it. But the other thing I would just add, because I, I think it is underappreciated here, not many people have had good years. Um, you know, whether you're an asset allocator, whether you're a bond investor or credit investor uh, or an equity-only guy, I mean, it's been pretty hard to have a good year unless you're strictly macro and you got the currencies right. I mean, 
mean, that's about the sliver that you needed to be in. And, you know, what, what we're concerned about just from a game theory perspective is if, particularly given where the sentiment is, if things start to improve, there's going to be an awful lot of performance chasing that almost has to happen. And so the asymmetrical risk, in our view, uh, again, given where sentiment is, is that people could really find themselves in a very uncomfortable spot at the end of November, early December, if things just don't end up being as bad as what people are expecting them to be. And, um, and you know, the market catches a bit of a bid. So it's a little bit of 3D chess. I mean, you have to play it. You know, it's, it's one thing to believe the fundamental story. Uh, it's another thing that the fundamental story is correct. But then on the third layer, it depends on, you know, how many people are positioned for that fundamental story. Because you can be right in the first two, and if everybody's already there, it just isn't going to matter. And I think that's one of the parts of the market this year that people have, have underestimated and uh, still has a bit of a, um, uh, of a tripwire to it. Mm. Yeah, it just reminds me, you know, just over the years, uh, you know, whenever market's down, you know, portfolio performance is down, um, you know, clients will fire you as an investor if uh, you gave them the downside volatility, but didn't give them the upside. And if the fear of missing out or recovery trade, if you're not there, that's it. You're gone. You know, you're toast. Someone else is going to be there to 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 take the mantle. And I think that uh, is something uh, which is again psychologically inbuilt into um, the professional investor behavior. Is that uh, they'll need to chase. I certainly agree with you that it could be pretty violent and pretty quick as well, which is uh, the real worry. Yeah. You know, and it, you, you raise a really good point and it's, um, it, it, there's actually a mathematical equation to capture that's called the Sortino ratio, right? So people look at the sharp ratio. Well, what the, the sharp ratio doesn't do is it doesn't differentiate between downside volatility, which people care about, and upside volatility, which people actually don't care about, right? They, they embrace it, right? So if, you, if you're going to tell me I've, I've got a 4% daily volatility in my portfolio, but it's all to the upside, like, you know, why isn't it more? Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. So, yeah. um, and, and that's one of the things that we do with all of our work is we go through and say, okay, well, on a sharp risk adjusted ratio, what does that look like? Fine. But now let's look at it from a Sortino ratio because in seasonality is actually a really good one for that because you will find that the sharp ratios tend to come down, that they don't look as good, but all that volatility actually tends to be upside volatility. So you have a relatively low sharp ratio, but a high Sortino ratio, which just says, yeah, there's more volatility, but it's the it's the type of volatility that usually you want to embrace, not not flee from. Mm. Yeah, the, the in terms of um, uh, clients of yours and people you speak to, um, what is the general mood, you know, amongst uh, amongst investors? Um, is it sort of? I mean, it's, it's fascinating here at uh, Sony EFG that the conservative investor, typically a bond investor, has had the highest volatility, and certainly the highest volatility relative to expectations. Where the equity investors are, in some respect, a little bit more sanguine. You know, they're kind of saying, "Yeah, markets go down. We've seen this before." you know, and so and so forth. And uh, the behavior is a little bit better. Still upset. I'm not saying that they are happy, yep. but, but you know, the bond investor is the one that at the moment you get the sense is the one that is really upset. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's a, that's a function or a byproduct of the policy, which is a lot of that volatility that they should otherwise have experienced over the last, you know, several years um, was suppressed. And, uh, you know, so 
that that put them into a false sense of security. And it, look, it did the same thing for equities, just not as, you know, the, the suppression was was more secondary, um, you know, than it was explicit or, or, or primary. And, um, you know, that suppression, I think, as we've seen rates go up, is just the uh, the unleashing of the of, of the dammed waters that, um, you know, look pretty placid behind the dam, but they're quite turbulent on the other side. And I think that's exactly what you're seeing. And you're seeing that reflected in, in currencies as well. I mean, look at, look at volatility of Forex and look at volatility of fixed income. They are substantially higher than they've been over the last 10 years. Um, and you know, on a sort of on par basis, they're certainly substantially higher than what you're seeing in equities. Mm. Uh, you know, what, one of the things I've learned in, in this business, Mose, and, and I'd be curious to, to, to hear your thoughts on this is it just feels like when, when, when people take risks to get, uh, to stretch for marginal returns, right? In other words, um, you know, I, I, I know I can get 2% on a 10-year yield, but I'm going to stretch for 4% or I'm going to stretch for 5%. Um, it, it always seems to me like th they end up taking substantially more risk than if they either switched asset classes or they just sort of sucked it up. And, um, you know, I, I, I understand that this business gives the people what they want and what they perceive they need. But I think the risks embedded in some of these things are just far higher uh, at the end of the day than what people are expecting. And I, you know, I think bonds were part of that. I mean, you had obviously a generation that's been uh, suppressed with these low yields and sort of forced to stretch. And they, you know, they have to ask themselves, well, you know, do I buy AT&T um, and, you know, I'm down 35 or 40 percent on the year. Do I buy bonds and lever them up? Uh, you know, I mean, either way, it just feels like you, you know, bu just buy the S and P and and ha have a 60 40 portfolio and just you know, mm -hmm. you, you're you're going to have drawdowns, but it's not going to be nearly as catastrophic as what uh, what else is out there. Yeah, look, it's a very very good point. I think certainly in 2020 and 21, and and even before that, particularly in say euros or swiss francs or uh, you know even yen um those currencies um or those rates were were negative right so you ended up having if you're on a positive yield you were stretching for yields which meant you'd borrow a lever up you know fixed income levered portfolios is probably the trade to do over the last you know 10 or 15 years till 2021 um yep. And uh, and uh, yeah, that that is kind of embedded in 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 people's psychology. And so when the when the I think you described it very well. When the dam's broken, you know, you just realise that there was a lot more vol volatility there than you had sort of previously anticipated. Um, and uh, you know, I think that's a that is a that is a an absolutely relevant answer. Same with FX. You know, FX traders, poor FX traders, traders over the last, you know. I say ten years hardly made any money because vol was yep. so low, uh, and yep. it all kind of you know damn opened up this year right, in terms of the volatility. So, yeah, I th I, th I think um, you know that perception is is always a, a challenge, um, and and it does overextend people um, yeah, because they have that perception where they can just have equity volatility and live with it, you know, and, and just recognize yeah. they have it. And and you know this is this is with the benefit of hindsight, but I would have to say that it's it's more true in my career than not. Which is, you know, if we think back two or three years ago, where where was the perception of risk? 
the perception of risk was in energy, right? Mm-hmm. The perception of in, in risk was whether it was policymakers, um, you know, whether it was just the trends, uh, new energy, um, the you know the um, the 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 structure, uh, the credit quality of old fossil fuels. All that seemed very very risky um, at a time when you know the new economy seemed like they didn't have much risk. Mm. And you know now that we look back three or four years, you can see that it was quite the opposite. And, and I just I find that that happens a lot. It doesn't happen precisely. It's hard to say that it was on any given day that that uh, that worked. Though I, I I would probably point to a negative a negative print in crude oil in, I think it was April of 2020, which yeah, is yeah, you know, kind yeah. of like, are you kidding me? <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, but, the, but those things happen where the risks are often highest where we perceive them to be lowest and they're often lower, at least lower than what the perception is when they're, they're there. So let's talk about the market dynamics at the moment. So obviously um, uh, you get the sense suddenly over the last couple of weeks that, that, there's this kind of um, struggle between sentiment and and you know uh, and and that data that's still negative, but the market is no longer falling on that, which is maybe an early indicator, um, which we'll uh, no doubt see. Where do you think we are uh, at the moment in that sort of tug of war, um, and what would be the catalyst to kind of get things moving again, both either upside or downside? Yeah, it's a good question because, you know, there, there are certain industry groups that we would expect to uh, outperform and underperform. And, and when we say that, we mean on a relative basis, right? They can still actually go down or, you know, even the underperformers can go up. They just aren't going to go, they're going to go up less. Um, you know, one of those, you know, pretty clearly when this happens is this shift or this distinction uh, between energy and, say, consumer discretionary. And when we go back through time, again, 50 plus years, you know, one of the one of the clearest indications of a new bull market that has consistency to it is that consumer discretionary names, and we look at an equal weight so we can take out the impact of some of these big behemoths. Um, but consumer discretionary will absolutely have some relative performance characteristics, uh, upside relative performance characteristics, and usually that comes at the expense of of energy. And um, you know, it's almost this swap, if you will, of dollars in the in the gas tank versus dollars at the restaurant or dollars at the you know the new jacket or whatever the fashion is these days and um you know we don't see a lot of that i mean there are pockets but we don't see a lot of that certainly energy is still on a relative basis outperforming it's generated a lot of alpha in the last two years so it is a little stretched from an alpha perspective uh it's not stretched in our work from a valuation perspective so i think that still holds um but we don't really see that clear distinction that we'd like to see um, that said, not all is lost. I mean, at the same time, and, and a little bit inexplicably, I mean, I, I would say the <clears throat> one of the bigger challenges for us is we like to look at the data and then say, okay, well, given what the data is telling us, what what is that? Let's start sketching a narrative. What does this mean? And then it usually becomes clearer and clearer as you go, and then it becomes consensus, you know, at some point in time, usually quarters down the down the road. The challenge is not finding the pockets. The challenge is, is trying to figure out what the heck the narrative is that has all these things doing this at the same time because they're relatively disparate 
uh, disparate groups that historically would would be more of a mixed message. Mm. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting because we we're, we're exactly like you. We're trying to figure this out. We're seeing these breakouts, and we're like, oh, hang on a second, that's like. That's not what you expect, you know, we're going to deep recession next year, right? The conclusion I kind of came to, and it's just me, uh, I'm not sure I brought a lot, the whole team along with me yet, but um, uh, in this kind of soft landing type of, not it's always difficult to say soft landing, but a, a, a softer than deep recession landing, <laughs> should I say, it's probably the right word. Um, um, and, you know, it kind of reminds me of the setup we used to have in the 90s. You know, if I look at 94 coming out into 95 financials industrials were the best sectors coming out that out of that period mm. 95 96 i recall being particularly strong tech was a distant memory um uh, at that time no one was really that bothered until later on in the decade of course but um but uh, it seemed that narrative or that picture seems to be consistent like a mid 90s type of you know, 94, 95, um, 90, 96. But interestingly, 95 was good for both um, uh, uh, bonds and equities <laughs> for the first time. Right, uh, right. Uh, for, for those, I think 95 and 96 were both very good years for, for stocks and bonds. Well, that was a bit of the launch pad, right, into the late 90s where, yeah. and I think, honestly, looking back and, and we were both active, uh, you know, real bullets as i like to say back then it wasn't just <laughs> reading books we were you know in the markets at the time um i think that was was maybe one of the points that um helped to uh put the fed on a pedestal right they engineered this soft landing they were fine-tuning the economy um and in fairness they did a very good job masterful the market was never down more than 10 percent within the year and then they um you know, they were able to go and, and, and put it on pause and that really set the platform or the foundation for the late 1990s. I think that gave him a tremendous amount of confidence that, you know, has not necessarily served us well um, since that point, right? <laughs> That's and, right. And certainly, yeah. Yeah. I think financial markets have looked looked at that as being, you know, this omnipotent Fed that, um, that uh, certainly can do wrong, but um, has a, an awful lot of power. And then, you know, I'll tell you, that's one thing I would I definitely uh, <clears throat> think is an important observation. Um, you know, I, I, I like to say the, the Fed is, is uh, well, let me back up. Forecasting is a, is a hard job. There's no doubt about it. Predicting the future is a hard job. I think everybody knows that. And, and not very many people are good at it. And we don't really try to predict the future. We just try to think about the probabilities and go with the trends and identify them and ride them as long as we possibly can. The Fed is no better at predicting the future than anybody else. And yet they are given a certain latitude about being far better about being predictors of the future than the average, uh, you know, the average prognosticator. Um, that said, the Fed is far more powerful with their tools than anybody else. Mm. And so I think they have an overconfidence in their ability to predict and an underappreciation of their ability to influence what's happening, whether that's through rhetoric and forward guidance, or that's through actual, um, you know, the injection of of, uh, of reserves into the system known as quantitative easing, or, you know, setting policy rates. And so I think you've got a little bit of that that we're dealing with, which is they've got this um, uh, almost an arrogance of their ability to predict and then match policy with it, and an underappreciation of just how powerful that policy is. Mm. And it's interesting because we obviously looking at the money market futures curves at the moment 
and you know they've we've got rates obviously still going up uh, for at least another quarter uh, and then starting to kind of peak out we had took a quick look at when the fed peaks how quickly do they cut and on average like between three and six months <laughs> so so it's quite interesting to see that you know to your point that um maybe overconfidence very quickly goes to oops <laughs> you know and i think we're 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 all in that you know selling the uk with all these ldi you know derivatives and and pension funds and the horrible things are going on over here but um it, it certainly sort of echoes previous periods and that you know your point about overconfidence is is a is a, is a fascinating one I just think it's an important one to keep in mind that, you know, particularly when the sentiment becomes so lopsided or so one-sided, just, you know, if we're, if we really, and, and we try to do this all the time, if we say, okay, the history of their ability to predict is, I mean, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, 60-40 in their direction. Mm -hmm. Let's just give them the benefit mm -hmm. of the doubt. Um, but markets are priced as if they're 80-20 or mm -hmm. markets are priced as if they're 90-10. Right. Um, that's where there's opportunity. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you're going to be right. You could still be wrong. Yeah. yeah. But you know, for the times that you're right, you're going to make a lot of money. Yeah. And the times yeah. that you're wrong, you're not going to lose that much. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a very good point. So we're in the market uh, at the moment. We're seeing these relative trends, you know, developing. Any sort of ones, you know, you and I have discussed in the past, what are the what are the secular ones that you really want to own and you may want to own for a long time? Anything that's coming out from your work at the moment? I mean, you talked about industrials, talked about financials. Um um, what is your sort of what are the things that you are really honed in on to 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 kind of get on that train when it's when you realize it's coming <laughs> well we look at um, <clears throat> we look at a combination of things we look at the rolling alpha score how much alpha has been generated in a sector um, and that's that's all price and volatility based uh, versus the market um, so it doesn't have any fundamental uh, uh, discipline mm. or or data. That's that's part of it. But what we find for this is true for uh, industries and sectors. It's not true for individual stocks because they're too idiosyncratic. But um, you know, generally, alpha is mean reverting over a long enough period of time, and that that period of time has to be at least three years. The sweet spot's somewhere around five years. Um, you know, there's been a lot of negative alpha generated in, say, comm services. Um, there's been a lot of negative alpha generated in REITs here recently. Um, the, again, back to sort of the kinetic versus potential energy. That's all potential energy. We're not seeing anything, you know, from a kinetic standpoint that's breaking out. But we know where those are, that if we start to see breakouts, we definitely want to endorse those and not buy into whatever the bearish narrative as to why they've they've done so poorly well you know covid work from home nobody's ever going to work from an office again what whatever the the mm -hmm. story du jour ends up being we want to be you know very very sensitive that we're not um you know drinking drinking that potion too uh too mm -hmm. um enthusiastically um I, the one thing that that gets me i mean energy does have a high uh, alpha score it still has very good trends again and and you would expect at this point you know with sort of the idea of peaking inflation and the like um that uh, that it shouldn't do well we're a little nervous tactically because at this part of the market cycle they shouldn't do that well but you know the trends are the trends and they're they're telling us to to power through it um, I think the from a from a growth manager's perspective uh, in particular, um, what we find historically 
is that usually when tech is out of favor, healthcare is in favor and vice versa. And so if, if we've broken the back of this trend in yields, um, and I think that's probably the biggest question that we need to answer uh, and at least keep an eye on for the foreseeable future is, is this 40-year downtrend in yields broken? And if so, what are the implications of that? Usually, you'll break a downtrend and you won't start a, an immediate uptrend, but you'll go into a period of um, you know, what we call basing in the, in the technical field, which is, you know, essentially you'll get to a high and it'll come back and it will never make a lower low. It'll get to some oversold condition and then it'll rally. It'll get back to those highs and then it'll pull back. So you create this trading range through time. Um, I will say if, if inflation expectations are right, um, and, and that's debatable historically, they're, they're not, uh, they're not particularly great at being prescient about where future inflation is going to be. But if they're, you know, reasonable within one standard deviation today. Bonds are actually a very good buy. If you look at real yields today, I'm talking about the U.S., but mm -hmm. real yields are about 170 basis points. Um, uh, historically, when they're at this this point, the nominal yields don't tend to go much further to the upside. Um, there's a lot of faith based in that, right, that that those inflation expectations have to be correct. But uh, if they are, that, that makes the bond yields pretty um, you know, pretty interesting at this point. Um, and I think that's reasonable. I mean, and the, the, the one thing that we see, and I think this is unique over the last 40 years is when we look at our valuation work, which really what we found is that comparing equity free cash flow to the market, uh, triple B yield, right? So sort of, um, credit worthiness, um, uh, 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 that's where I'm looking for, uh, similarities, right? So you, you, you're not tr comparing it to a treasury because treasury is the government. Uh, you're comparing it to corporations which, you know, borrow at a, at a you know, non-governmental rate. And I think that's one thing that we haven't seen over 40 years is when we have bear markets historically, bond yields go down, right? And so when bond yields go down and you're comparing that as price drops, obviously the free cash flow yield goes up, you've got lower bond yields, you've got higher free cash flow yields, Every bear market in the last 40 years has created this, this value proposition. And that's not happening today. That hasn't happened today because yields have gone up, right? So one of the foundational linchpins to what we've seen historically is that you, you create this value proposition, albeit you know on a sliding scale, some were more than others, um, but we haven't created that, that proposition today. And I think that's one of the things that we're going to have to think about as we go forward is where are we in that uh, in in that schemata? Because if yields are going to be at four percent, or they're you know they're not going to go back to say two or two and a half, that's going to be a little bit more challenging for equities because mm -hmm. we don't have that same you know very simple, but we don't have that same mm -hmm. behavior that we've seen uh, over the basically everybody's career that's still you know still involved in the street. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's um, very interesting and certainly one to watch. My concern at the moment is what I call the boomerang effect. You know, the Fed's as you say, overconfidence, raising interest rates, say, yeah, we're really going for it. The big risk for them at the moment is that they break something, then have to react by cutting rates or, you know, pausing even much quicker than they would have anticipated, which then means they never quite fix the inflation genie, right? And that's then, exactly right. yeah, I think that to me, that's the kind of the biggest risk at the moment is that they overdo it and, and actually force a break, which then actually causes them to to pause which is could be indeed the wrong thing to do um from a from an inflation perspective anyway one we will certainly keep a very close eye and watch at this point in time in terms of um other measures um 
you know, looking at, say, treasuries at the moment, obviously yields, you know, I can't remember a time when I've seen yields go up 10, 20 basis points in a day, but it seems to happen virtually every other day. <laughs> like today, just looking just before I left, bond yields are up another 10 basis points. Yeah. These are just huge moves relative to what we've used to, even, I would argue, even before the global financial crisis. We didn't mm-hmm. never had these moves this violently. What do you think is is driving that? Is it is it? Do you think it's just the liquidity now? A lot less. We don't have intermediaries or actually market making anymore, and so we're just left to simple demand and supply factors. I think that's absolutely part of it. I think there was that yield suppression, which was part of it. I mean, part of part of what happens when you you know you you take yields down and you have a persistent buyers you you take volatility out of the system, right? So that's that's one thing that's underappreciated usually. Um, and I think that's a big one, um, no doubt about it. The, um, you know, the interesting part about the, the yields, and um, this gets back to the, sort of the original comments that we talked about, which is, you know, theory versus practice versus, you know, what works and what doesn't. It, you know, if you, look at, if you look at a spread or a yield curve, um, uh, or any rate for that matter, you know, if you're, if you're buying an asset, a million dollar uh, property, let's say for 2%, um, you're paying $20,000 in interest on that. That's just the way it works. Right. Um, and there's obviously principle to that as well, but $20,000 is your, is your carry essentially. Uh, if that goes up, that doubles to, you know, 4%, that's going to be $40,000, right? Okay. Well, that's, you know, that's a doubling. Um, that, that works geometrically, particularly as you get into the leverage that's involved in it, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. rates work geometrically. And so a 20 base or a 200 basis point move at 6% um, still has that same $20,000, but it's a little different when you're at 60,000 to 80, that's you know still in the ballpark. So that geometric move is so much more important because guess what happens? Well, it has convexity to the value of the asset, right? If you say, well, I can only afford a $40,000 payment, um, but rates are at 2%. Now I can afford uh, the same $40,000, which means I can pay $2 million for that house, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have that convexity that that has a big, big part of um, the value of those assets. And if you look, though, at yield spreads and you try to to use a ratio basis, which would be the right way to think about a spread historically because of that that um, uh, the geometric relationship, it just doesn't work. I mean, if you go, if you look at it in, in Japan, which is the the right way to sort of think about what this test case looks like, or, or maybe it does, but we haven't lived through it long enough to see what the implications are. Right. Um, that's, you know, that's where it gets really, really funky. So almost any yield curve analysis that we do, I put a big, big question on it because, uh, it's just, it, it just doesn't have the same, um, output that it, you would expect it to have in a sort of rational and consistent way. So mm-hmm. I think that's going to be the convexity of rates, I think, is going to be something that we're going to see, we're going to study, and we're probably going to be victims to for for a while. Mm-hmm. No, it's a very, very good point. Um, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I think, I think uh, you know, being able to... to I guess the delta from here going upwards now is just going to have a much bigger impact than when it was a lot lower. Um, yep. You know, it's you don't need much of it, and and I've you know a lot of people certainly people older than me saying oh came to me is it like you know you don't remember the seventies but I was there and so and so forth. 
big difference between then and then is today we have a huge amount of leverage relative to the 70s. So the sensitivity to that, you know, uh, geometric relationship that you talked about is a lot, lot bigger than it used to be at that point. So yeah. you're more likely to break something today, given the leverage, than you were at that point. Um, and, yeah, uh, the analogy yeah. that we use, I mean, it's it's silly, but it, it works. It's you know, you can you can drive down a country lane at 30, 35 miles an hour, and you know, almost no matter how rough it is, it might be a bumpy ride, but it's not bad. But you start going a hundred and you know, you're going to yeah. veer off pretty quickly, either yeah. break the car yeah. or end up in the ditch yeah. uh, or, you yeah. know, wrapped around a tree somewhere. So it's the same thing. I mean, leverage is just speed, right. Yeah. And, and yeah. it's just, uh, uh, it requires a much smoother road to, yeah. to perform at yeah. the same, uh, at the same. Yeah. So, uh, very quickly, um, a couple of things. Um, what do you think about some of the international markets, um, in terms of, you know, purely looking at the charts, um, you know, one of the markets or domestic markets that we kind of like a two that come out to, to my mind, uh, obviously Japan has been a huge relative outperformer in this, in this period, obviously not in dollar terms, but certainly in local currency terms. Um, you kind of, you're thinking that you think the Nikkei could potentially break out to the eighties at some point, if, um, if it has a kind of fair wind, I think, Think dollar yen at one fifty. Just I've been telling all my friends, if you haven't been to Japan, you've got to do it now before it's too late. <laughs> no, you're so right. You're so right. I mean, I've got to get to the UK you know, first and <laughs> foremost. You got to warm up with a trip to the UK, and then I'll go to Japan. Mm. But yeah, I mean, you're 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 totally you're absolutely spot on. the The two twenty five index is consolidating. It's basically been consolidating since the beginning of two thousand and twenty one. Um, it needs to get through thirty thousand for it to break out. That's you know that's local. Um, uh, and so it, as, as we look at it, uh, I, I think that's absolutely right. This is a nice consolidation, um, and it's, you know, very likely to, to result in a breakout. So it's one of the few globally, particularly in Asia, because, mm. uh, you know, what we're seeing out of China, what we're seeing out of Hong Kong, those are, I, I know that there's a lot of interest in, you know, maybe that will be the, the catalyst to get the world going again and you know people are underestimating uh, you know what exactly is happening there on the upside uh we're not seeing it yet you know that's not reflected yet in the capital markets so usually the capital markets will sniff that out of several several mm. months before the data comes mm. and we're just not seeing that out of mm. uh, uh out of china mm. and uh india is the other one that we're kind of structural bulls on uh as well in terms of our kind of long-term thinking i think it's um it's a it's an uptrend um, for you know, and I will say there there have been there have been some real oddities with the strong dollar that mm. we're seeing, and mm. one of those oddities is the performance of uh, emerging markets yeah. in the face of the strong mm. dollar. And for yeah. you know, yeah. forget just the way the equity markets look. I mean, mm. the, the BIS has been uh, that's the Bureau of International Sentiments. Um, has been concerned about dollar funding and leverage in the system for a long time, and I mean, mm. probably a decade now. Mm. And if ever there was a time that you would expect that that now, those yeah. chickens would come home to roost, it'd yeah. be now. Yeah. And yet these, you know, these economies and these equities continue to look very, very good. So um, yeah, I'd add Brazil to that equation as well, right? It's yes, uh, I totally agree. again strong dollar, high rates, the yep. recipe for disaster. But but yep. it's not the case this time. No. It has not been, and it looks good. I mean, there's a constituency uh, that yeah. probably helps yeah. there in terms of what makes up the the Bavespa, but still, you're you're absolutely right. And even 
you know, even energy here in the in the U.S. I mean, energy has been outperforming, um, and that is, I think, the third most sensitive uh, industry group that we have to yeah. to the dollar, yeah. and you know, yeah. just has absolutely turned a blind eye. Yeah, no, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating, you know, time actually. Um, uh, certainly as a market watcher, maybe less as a participant, but certainly okay. as a watcher, it's yeah. been, uh, it's been, uh, it's it's been very interesting to actually, you know, look at these uh, observations because they're, you know, like high yield outperforming, you know, investment grade this year. You know, yeah. obviously the duration effect has been there. Economy is probably okay, you know. So you are seeing all of these sort of things that. Um, you know, that are very different to the path we've seen. I would argue, certainly not in the last 10 years, we haven't seen these sort of observations because they usually work the other way. But even sort of 20 or 30 years, you know, some certainly real changes in oddities. And it's difficult at the moment to know whether that's just positioning because people are just out of it or haven't really bothered. You know, how many people have been pushing emerging market product at you for the last decade? <laughs> you know, it's just like right. nobody, right? So. Yeah. Yep. So you you, uh, you you certainly start to sort of pick up on those things and start looking at those observations and thinking, oh, actually, this looks quite interesting. You know, maybe there's something here. Uh, certainly yeah. is a fascinating time. And, and, you know, you hit on you hit on a very important point and something that's been really a foundation to my career, which is there are so many things going on in the world, right? One of the simplest ways just just if nothing else, just to alert yourself that something might be different is just going through the charts, mm, right? Mm, just just yeah. walk through the charts. There's no way in, it just, you just don't have the time or the mental capacity to be able to understand all the nuances of what's going on from a current account standpoint mm. to, uh, to rates, to commodities, to FX, to, to, to equities, et cetera. But you could spend literally an hour and run through roughly a thousand charts and create a pile, and I do this, I try to do it every week, but at least once every two weeks, um, and just create a pile that says, this looks interesting, what is happening here, right? And you'd be amazed at just how quickly you can start piecing together the narrative of what the next either problem or the next solution is going to be. No, absolutely. I think certainly a a nice roundup to the the art of technical analysis and... and, uh, um, certainly uh, it, it's there to just create the observations right you still in the end you still have to do your homework so absolutely. you know you know that uh, the, 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 you're, you're absolutely right um, Jeff any sort of last things that you think are just really interesting that we may have missed um, that you think you know Mose you've missed that I should really tell you about that well we did start with credit right so that yeah. was one of the you know has always been one of the hallmarks for me in my career and I would say, um, you know, the credit markets today, as concerned as everybody is, particularly about, quote unquote, the, you know, the, the Fed or central banks globally mm. are, are going to break something. Um, the credit credit conditions have deteriorated, uh, but they certainly are not at the, the level that we would um, we would say are consistent with a recession mm. or, mm. you know, even a hard landing. I mean, there, you know, there are landings that rip the landing gear off. And there are landings that are a little bumpy and uncomfortable. And I would say at, you know, at the margin, maybe this is bumpy and uncomfortable, but it does not look like um, they're ripping the landing gear off this yet. So mm. we'll see. Yeah, it's a very interesting point because I think in the past, whenever we've looked at credit cycles, we've always looked at it in terms of there's usually one big sector or a sector that's causing the issues, right? So, for example, in 2015-16, it was the energy sector, actually. There was an emerging markets that were creating a lot of the the noise and, and, and the spread widening 
Um, uh, same thing in, uh, you know, obviously 2007, six, it was the banks as the financials that were credit spreads were widening out before they finally cracked. And in the 2000s, it was the telcos, you know, all the extra spending they were doing on building up broadband and so on and so forth that, that cracked and they were a big sector at the time. We don't see that this time around. It's it's yeah. it's kind of bizarre, you know. You know, we we feel that you know mild recession or slowdown is is definitely probably uh, the right thing given where the Fed's move rates to. But we're not seeing a particular sector, usually a larger sector, that's creating that contagion impact that would that would affect the credit markets. It's quite fascinating, actually. Yeah, I agree, and and you know we're always keeping an, an eye out for that. Um, you know, I guess the the question is is this time it's Different, it's governments, yeah. right? Did, yeah. did the oh, governments, governments uh, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. Are they the ones that uh, ended up leveraging up? So, yeah, yeah. Well, certainly we see we've seen that in the UK. <laughs> that's for sure. And we talked about it a little bit earlier, and and you know that that's why currencies are so important, right? Currencies are the the great shock absorber to. Uh, disparate policies, which yeah. is a polite way to say it, or bad policies yeah. uh, versus yeah. good policies, right? And so, um, you know, the, the I think one of the most important things for globalization to continue in, you know, the healthy uh, capitalistic formation and, and wealth generation for the entire globe is to have that continued free float of mm -hmm. currencies. Mm -hmm. Because the minute you start to, um, you know, to, to, to put gates up and um, you know, restrict capital flows and influence currencies, you create imbalances. And those imbalances, you know, at some point become uh, the greater of the of the evil that you're trying to, to solve. Yep. And so, you know, I'm, I'm relieved to see that the currencies are doing what they should do. Obviously, that is, um, as you said, um, not many people left in the currency business, which in and of itself tells you that you know, there probably was an opportunity there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly they're the pressure valve uh, is the way to, I guess to describe it to just ease the pressure out uh, um, whenever things are getting a little bit more trickier. Certainly, we're seeing that in the pound, and uh, certainly we're going to be welcoming lots of tourists <laughs> to the UK, particularly American tourists. Count me uh, as one. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeff, listen, thank you very much for coming on. It was a, it's always a pleasure to have you on. I think there was a, a lot of excellent content there for us to to digest and to think about, as always. And um, you know, uh, certainly uh, if you're in London, uh, it'll be my shout for dinner. But uh, look forward to that. Most thank you. We'll look forward to seeing you. Great, thank you. So that's uh, that's it for Beyond the Benchmark this week, um, and we'll be back again uh, next week. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>